1: You're listening to this week's excerpt from the Dear Prudence podcast. To get the full-length, members-only version every week, join Slate Plus at slate.com slash prudipod.
0: Dear Prudence.
1: Dear Prudence.
0: Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence.
1: Dear Prudy. Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back. It's the Dear Prudence Show. I am Dear Prudence. I'm also known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is my older sister, Laura Turner. Here's the bio. I'm just going to read it without comment. I just want to say first that she submitted it and my producer put it in the script. Laura Turner is a writer living in San Francisco. She's also my older sister and by far the best of all the Ortberg children. I don't know where I would be without her. That's what it says. That's what I'm reading. Those words came out of your mouth. I just want to point out that um, You don't even use the name Ortberg. So claiming to be the best Ortberg child while going by Laura Turner feels to me like trying to have the best of both worlds.
0: No, it is not because the name Ortberg is legally still in my name. (sighs) I kept it. I have two middle names now. Orted. My regular middle name and Ortberg.
1: That makes me feel slightly better about the fact that I believe I will have two middle names when I change my name legally. Yeah. When I get around to finishing it.
0: I think that is exciting for you to have.
1: Oh, uh, Grace! Just Grace is silently here in the studio uh, again. The silent guest tapped me on the shoulder and gave me three, which apparently means I've promised to take on an, another middle name, and I forgot about it. I'm shocked that you forgot
0: something important. If
1: anyone listening has a name they'd like me to add while I'm at it, uh, please feel free to get in touch, and I'll throw it in there. Yeah, contractually obligated. Um, I'm no, 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 no more tapping. No more tapping. You either have a comment that you want to swing around to a microphone to make, or you don't make it. That's my ruling. Laura, I'm so glad you're here on the show. Me too. I want to try to keep this relatively uh, according to the rules. Uh, and so I think we should just get started and you should read our first letter. I would love that. Thank All right. you.
0: The first letter says the subject, friends in an abusive relationship. Dear Prudence, I'm really concerned about two of my friends. Let's call them Jen and Kevin, who are married to each other and in what appears to be an increasingly abusive relationship. Throughout their whole relationship, which started in college, They've always bickered a lot. They've now been married for a few years, and in the past year or two, things have gotten really bad. They've had innumerable massive blowout fights with each other in public, or when we've been at their house, that have even turned somewhat physical. The abuse appears to be coming from both sides. We know Kevin's been seeking treatment for depression, and when we spoke with Jen, she's expressed concern that separation could make those matters worse. Kevin's made threats to this extent, it seems. Question mark. An added issue is financial matters. Jen's getting a PhD right now, and she is concerned about being able to afford to live on her own. What can or should we do?
1: So one of the things that I think came up for me as I was reading this is the idea of mutual abuse, which seems like a mm-hmm. very vague expression I have heard before mm-hmm. and wanted to do just a little more research over. So I was spending a little time um, on a couple uh, of, of resources for people who are attempting to get out of abusive relationships and... It's kind of my understanding that that stems from a couple of different misunderstandings mm-hmm. um, and that what's really important is, is that while both members of an abusive relationship can engage in healthy unhealthy behaviors, mm-hmm. um, the idea that both people are like with equal amounts of power, with equal amounts of control um, – simply creating this situation, it does not seem to actually really be the case. And it Mm kind of comes more from um, a a history of maybe, like, if the police get called out and they have to make an arrest and they simply, like, take down both sides, Mm -hmm. you know, if one person is getting, like, pushed around all day and hits back, they just record that as, well, they were both physical. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the thing that, like, came up for me as I was reading this is, like, they say this is this appears to be mutually abusive and yet I see that you know Kevin has apparently threatened that apparently if she were to try to leave him he might his health might be at risk and he might die mm-hmm. and that Jennifer is afraid to leave because she doesn't have the money to do so. Yeah. So when it comes to who seems to have the power or the control in this relationship and who seems to not have the resources they need to get away it seems pretty clear that Kevin is abusing Jen, and Jen may be yelling, mm-hmm. Jen may be saying unkind or uh, not okay things, but Kevin does not seem to think that he can't leave. Kevin seems to be trying to keep her from leaving. So I do think um, there actually is kind of a, a more clear case here than than would first seem to be.
0: Yeah, I think you've put your finger on a really important dynamic in this letter, which is that... Um, it seems that neither Jen nor Kevin are operating as their best selves in this relationship. Like, that feels very clear. We can kind of lay that down. But it also does not seem like a mutually um, balanced relationship in terms of power, just given those notes that Danny made about uh, about Jen's feelings, fear of leaving, financial instability if she were to leave, and and the word threat being used to describe what Kevin has done. Um I wonder very much what what the relationship is like for the letter writer between them and Jen. If they're someone who's a little bit closer with Jen and um, maybe has more of a, a confidence there or an openness. And if that might be the way forward in this relationship is to kind of if the letter writer feel comfortable making themselves open as a safe place for Jen Particularly, it seems like since this is part of a, maybe a group of friends from college, because there's a lot of, you know, we know this, we've observed this. Mm-hmm. Um, part of what I wondered if given the financial instabilities that Jen's dealing with as a Ph.D. student, if one possible area of help might be for some friends to put together some money and say to Jen, you know, we, we have noticed these things. Would it be possible that it would be helpful for you if you felt like you had Uh, financially, the ability to put down the first and last month's rent on Mm -hmm. a new place.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I think that that would be amazing or or even to to try to help her figure out if she has resources available on the campus of wherever she's receiving her PhD yeah Um, and again that doesn't mean she has to like go to the dean of students and reveal the details of her situation but any help that you can provide in terms of Jen if you did need to leave Mm -hmm. um, here are the ways that we your friends could help both financially and also in terms of getting resources so that you could yeah Um, and I think to really ask some questions of Jen, like, um, uh, you know, seeking a separation could make those matters worse. And you mm-hmm. seem to think Kevin's made threats to that extent. I think that's worth getting clarity yes,
0: on. Yes, absolutely. And again,
1: that doesn't mean hounding Jen. Um, if if she seems really cagey or really reluctant to speak about it, you know, give her time, give her space. Mm-hmm. But say, my worry is that Kevin has said, if you try to leave, he will kill himself. Mm-hmm. That that to me is what I'm like reading between the lines. Yeah, here, is that you are responsible for his life or death? Yeah, um, that's not how depression works. No, um, if he says that to you, you don't need to give him a free pass just because he's depressed.
0: No, and that's not a burden that belongs on anyone else's shoulders. That doesn't belong on Jen's
1: shoulders. Right, and it, and if he hasn't said that, you know, then that will be helpful to right. know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, to try to find out, to say, like, th- this really concerns me. Here's mm-hmm. my fear. Yeah. When you've told me that he's made threats to this extent, I- I- I've believed it to mean this. Yeah, Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Um, and yeah. if that is what's going on, to just really stress how not okay that is.
0: I wonder, too, if part of what's happened, because the letter writer talks about uh, that they bickered a lot in college, um, or at least they've always bickered a lot. Their relationship started in college, and lately things have been spilling over. And so I wonder if... Um you might also be able to kind of understand and ask Jen does it feel like is there something that's made things shift is there a particular stressor or moment that that made things get worse cuz i've noticed things getting worse or are we as your friends just now seeing something that's been there kind of all along yeah um and trying to trying to listen to her and understand what it's been like for her to be in this relationship cuz there's there are pieces here that just would be hard for anyone to put together not being in the relationship themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think my primary worry would be for this letter writer mm-hmm. would be to say, well, because they've always fought, right, and because there's not just one person kind of cowering in a corner, right? I can't possibly identify power dynamics mm-hmm. or call this abuse coming primarily from one side. Um, and, you know, part of what makes it abuse is that power dynamic. Yeah, is that like. Um, Uh, sense of unsafety um, Mm. sense of isolation sense of dependence that you foster in the person you're abusing Um, so you know don't let the fact that don't don't try to like it's sort of like um, when people have a hard time kind of distinguishing between like prejudice and racism Mm. and it's sort of like well what's the power behind it Mm -hmm. you know yeah Um, and so to say like if they both yell at each other in public that might be distressing, that might mm-hmm. be awful, if only one of them feels like, I can't get out of this because my partner will die yeah. and I don't have the money to leave, yeah, then it's very clear who's being abused, even if they are not behaving in a way that you would think that's what an abuse victim looks like.
0: Yeah, and I think that's another really helpful piece to point out because it can feel like, well, we just will wait to say anything or intervene and, to, and meaningfully until we see... Jen with a black eye or something that just feels incredibly dramatic. Mm-hmm. and and um like then, oh, well, I know I have to take action. And you know, certainly you would you would intervene then, but it's also really important to to notice and pay attention to those very kind of subtle sometimes dynamics, particularly if you and your friends are accustomed to seeing them in a relationship you might describe as dramatic or volatile or they bicker a lot it's just normal that's what they do that's jen and kevin and Mm -hmm. um that that is not uh it's a little bit like that i don't know if this ever was actually a real thing but that frog in the boiling water analogy right where you kind of think things are simmering up to a boiling point as opposed to going from zero to 212 degrees all of a sudden Mm -hmm. but um it seems pretty clear that yeah jen is in a position where she feels a lot of responsibility for kevin's emotional well-being and feels like her taking action to protect herself or separate from him would make things worse and no matter what else is going on in the relationship that's not a good place for her to be in
1: right and so this doesn't mean that you have to say everything jen has ever done is good Um, but i think you can kind of clearly identify who's the person who needs help Mm -hmm. um Would it be better for both of them to be out of this relationship? I think so. And so I I think to look for ways to communicate to Jen both like I'm really worried Mm -hmm. um, and also I want to be able to help you get out of this. And if if Jen wants to sort of say I'm sure it's not that bad to just really kind of – again, you don't have to like hammer at home. You don't Mm -hmm. have to force her to do anything but just to really say when you tell me that you're worried that if you try to leave – Kevin might hurt himself or somebody else yeah. and that you don't have the money to leave, that's not okay and that's not a normal way yep. to feel. Not like you're not normal, Jen, but like yeah. you shouldn't have to feel that way about a relationship. Yeah. A healthy relationship, even an imperfect one, will not have one person feeling like, no. I don't know what I would, I couldn't possibly leave. I'm not allowed to leave. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I think that that to revisit the issue of are there what resources are available on her campus? Is there a counseling center? Is yeah. it subsidized? Um, are there, you know, is there a hotline that she can call? Is there someone she can speak with in person? Yeah, And then to think through, you know, it seems like this is part of a, a group of friends. Um, so to also think through what what you would and would not be willing to say to Kevin is probably helpful. I don't know kind of what that relationship looks like, but... Um, It sounds like he might be someone who's prone to making threats and saying things that make Jen feel um, afraid possibly. And so to think through, is this a situation where you might need to be very guarded around what you actually share with Kevin? Because giving him more information about Jen's emotional state or asking about it would actually be giving him more power. And that would probably be a a bad thing in this situation.
1: Yep. I I think that's a really good point um, that you can't both sides your way out of this one you can't be like well i disagree with what they're both doing um you know sure it's wrong for kevin to emotionally and financially manipulate jen but jen has also said or done bad things so i'm gonna try to like be equally supportive to both Mm -hmm. of them and again that doesn't mean you have to say kevin is an irredeemable monster who i no longer care about but especially in terms of helping jen get out of this relationship um you cannot help jen while also being a confidant to kevin about this right um and so you know to whatever extent you may or may not be able to talk to him about certain choices and behaviors that he needs to change that's going to have to wait until you know jen is safe yeah um, and so that that just can't be your priority right now. Um, and and yeah, I, I think the last thing in terms of resources, you know, if your town has women's shelters, yeah, those will be good resources. Again, even if she doesn't decide to utilize them, mm-hmm. but to find out where they are, um, what they do, do they offer counseling? Do they mm-hmm. offer somebody to talk to over the phone who can kind of give you a sense of like, yeah, we actually do take in people yeah. in situations like this. Um,
0: I think one of the worst feelings in. Um in a relationship or in a stuck moment in life, one of the worst feelings is I don't have any options. I can't get out of this. I can't leave. And it sounds like Jen is really feeling that right now. And so as a friend, if you're someone who can put together, you know, a list of, here are five different options we have and kind of frame it as I'm in your corner. Mm -hmm. I want to, you know, listen to her, listen to what she has to say. Um, and, And then if it would be helpful, help her to see maybe... These are five different things we can do. We can, you know, I can take you away for the weekend if it's as simple as you just need to get away and need a little time and distance. I can drive you to the shelter. I can help you with finances. Um, Help you look for apartments. Help you look for a new place on your own. You can talk with a counselor at the school that you go to. But just for her to know, there are options. So she is not feeling, you know, suffocated on top of everything else. So she can kind of take a deep breath to be able to make the the best decision for her, I think would be really, really good. Right. A- and I think
1: to really um, not bring up, well, you've both done some things that seem right. pretty not okay. If she is talking about trying to leave and feeling trapped. Yes. Um, uh, because to have that kind of you know, again, I don't want to say that this is 100% the case, but oftentimes abusers will, one of the ways that they will make their victims stay is they'll say, like, well, you made me angry. Oh, yeah. And that one time you pushed me back. Yeah. So it's actually, you know, equal on both our parts. And yeah. other people have seen you act badly. And so they won't believe you. Yeah. Uh, and so part of my concern here is that because you have seen some of those moments, you will think mm-hmm. totally equal, totally equal on both sides. No one person needs help getting out. They're yeah. both just doing the exact same thing. Um, and when she clearly needs help, uh, I, I, I think that would not be a good or a useful thing to say. Yeah. But I, this is painful and I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, it's hard. And I, I really hope that you're able to provide Jen with some meaningful help and I hope, she, hope she's able to leave.
0: Yeah. You sound like a very caring friend and I'm glad that she
1: has you in her life. Yeah. So we are moving away from the world of the family and into the world of the workplace. um, And the subject of this next letter is religious inclusion in the workplace. Dear Prudence, I just found out that my office's yearly holiday party has been scheduled for December 7th, a Friday evening. I'm Jewish, and on Friday evenings, I celebrate Shabbat, a weekly Jewish holiday. Shabbat is celebrated differently by every Jew, but in general, it's considered a day of rest. I personally observe by going to synagogue for services or by having a traditional meal with friends and family. I will not be able to attend the holiday party due to this conflict. I am far from the only Jewish person in my office. I'd say we make up about 15 to 20 percent of the staff, but I'm not sure that anyone else aside from me would really care. My employer pays a lot of lip service to diversity and inclusion, so this oversight feels particularly hurtful. Doesn't scheduling a holiday party on Shabbat fall under the category of reasonable accommodations for religious-based inclusion? Or am I being obnoxious if I bring this issue up that might only impact me? the holiday party isn't mandatory after all. And I do appreciate my employer's generosity in throwing one at all. Thanks in advance.
0: This is a tricky one. I, I found myself really like I, I appreciate the thought that the letter writer put in behind um, thinking through their, you know, what their employer's perspective was. But it's also I mean, to work in a place that says they value diversity, and inclusion and to not have necessarily thought through the Jewish people on staff may not be able to attend this um, is something that's worth bringing up and talking about. So I think, you know, I'm not sure exactly how to say this. And I think, you know, prudence might have some better wording ideas. But I think this is very worth raising to the workplace. uh, If you have a human resources team, um, if there's, you know, a coworker you feel especially close with and maybe can Th- run some ideas by them beforehand um, but to to just be able to say to kind of raise your hand and say hey I'm glad to be part of this team I'd like to be able to attend a holiday event um, and part of what I like about working here is the sense of inclusiveness or part of what I wish we did a better job at was actually being inclusive mm-hmm. even though we say we we want to be um, I'm not going to be able to attend for religious reasons and that's something that is worth thinking through that would be really, really valuable to bring up, I think.
1: Right. Especially because presumably the reason this is a holiday party and not a Christmas party is because Because they are acknowledging their employees celebrate multiple holidays. Um, And you know, all that you're suggesting bringing up is simply telling somebody at your company that you can't generally attend parties on Friday nights and you would like that to be taken into consideration when they schedule big parties. That's very reasonable to say. You know, the question about whether or not this falls under reasonable accommodation sort of suggests that you are maybe, like, hoping that there's a a legal backup to this. And my sense in this is not because you're interested in bringing legal action, but you're sort of worried, like, if I don't have that to fall back on, will I look like I'm just making a big deal over nothing? And I think it's actually fine, even if it does only affect you, to say – You know, it may be too late for this year. Mm -hmm. It may not. If we can move it to a Thursday, I would really appreciate that. Um, If we could, you know, in the future, not always schedule holiday parties for Fridays. Um, I would like that very much. I think that's a super reasonable thing to say. Um, I don't think you need to worry about whether or not the other Jewish people in the office celebrate Shabbat in the same way that you do. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think you have every right to speak up on your own behalf Um, and to say that you would like them to take this into account, not just this time, but in the future.
0: Yeah. And I think when I was saying it feels tricky, I think it's more the tricky piece is just figuring out how to say what you want, but that you, that you can and maybe should say something feels like a great idea. And certainly you sound like a really thoughtful person. I think that, um if this is something where it would make you feel better, thinking about other people coming after you, you know, making room for them um, in their celebration of Shabbat or just being able to speak up for themselves, that could be super helpful. At the same time, there's nothing wrong with, and in fact, something quite wonderful about being able to speak up for yourself and saying, yep, I'm just one person, but we pay a lot of lip services, you say, to diversity inclusion. Here's one way we can
1: actually be quite inclusive. Yeah. Yeah. And inclusion is not simply like handed out in terms of like the proportion of the group. Right. right? Like that's a big part of the reason why inclusion is important is because often people are underrepresented mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of the point of uh, trying to make sure you can accommodate as many people as possible, is even one person matters. Yes. Um, Even the possibility of future people matter.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very important point. And sometimes we can feel like unless we're part of a group that is, um, you know, of a significant size, we should not raise our hands and ask to be counted. And I think in this particular case, but in many other cases, large groups would benefit so much from taking into account the stories of the just one person person. In their organization who has probably been overlooked in other ways. And so for you to be able to say this kind of thing, because it certainly applies to this holiday party, but there may well be future events that people would schedule for a Friday night um, had they not really thought about it. And I think that you have um, not only every right to bring it up and have that sense of being backed up by, you know, probably what is in the law, but also just what is in the spirit of uh, inclusion and diversity and and
1: valuing people that's very important yep and i think the last thing that i want to add because i, I think we've mostly covered it mm-hmm. is you're being very generous towards your employer in your last sentence which yes. is that the holiday party isn't mandatory and i just want to remind everyone that mandatory <laughs> holiday parties are wage theft um and it is not a generous that says that it is not generous of your employer to uh, throw a holiday party it is uh, you know Employers aren't generous. Well, I'll yeah. just go ahead and say that employers, employers aren't generous.
0: Do that to boost your sense of morale and friendship at a company, which is great, but that also makes you want to stay there longer and work harder and give them more money. So, you know, go to the holiday party or don't. Do whatever you want.
1: Yeah. It's not like a friend showing up at your house and surprising you with like a beautiful surprise party just out of the goodness of their hearts. It's a good point. Um, I did that for Zach this year. Again, that's your husband. Yeah. Um there's some that's you know, generous. Yeah. But you got something out of it too. Well, uh, I suppose altruism. Uh, uh, also, literally just showing up at someone's house and demanding to have a party is incredibly rude. <laughs> not a, uh, hello, Grace. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> us. Um, it you, depends on if you bring the party with you. Hi, I'm here with two dozen of your friends and we're about to have a party in your house. I hope you enjoy it. So I guess we know how you feel about holiday parties or surprise parties, rather. Yeah. You don't like surprise parties. Well. You would not be delighted in having a surprise party thrown. In my house. Not in my house. Not really? At- hmm. Wait, Even if they took up responsibility for cleaning up afterwards? If I didn't have anything else to do and wasn't specifically planning to chill out, but how would you mm-hmm. know?
0: I feel like a good friend would try to understand that, would know, like, but I guess, I don't know, it's difficult. This is a difficult thing. They can't be inside your head. All right, fair
1: enough. it's I, a time theft. I agree. Thank you very much for your input, Grace. Laura, would you please read
0: our next letter? Will do. Thank you. Subject, is it a bad idea to try to get pregnant while the future of my marriage is uncertain? Dear Prudence, my husband and I have been together for 11 years and married for five. We have an amazing two-year-old daughter who we absolutely adore. We were about to start trying for another child when, during an argument, my husband told me he doesn't think our marriage will last and he's been thinking about ways we can separate while still living together so he can still see our daughter every day. This does not come as a surprise to me. We've both been unhappy for a while now, and we think about splitting up approximately every six months since even before our daughter was born. So far, we've hung on, but I think we're both about ready to throw in the towel. We're planning to go to counseling, but what I'm wondering is, is it absolutely crazy to think about going ahead with trying for a second child despite our marital predicament? I'm not under any illusions that a second child will save our marriage. However, we're both in our late 30s, so if we split up, it is unlikely that I at least will be able to have any children with anyone else, especially as I am not quick to recover from breakups, and anticipate that I will definitely be menopausal before I'm ready to date again. Also, if we're going to get divorced, which isn't a foregone conclusion by any means, while I'm sure it will be harder on both of us to be a single parent of two children, I think it will be easier for our daughter if she has a sibling to rely on. I had a lot of conflict with my parents growing up and I feel like I wouldn't have survived without my sisters to lean on. Plus, both of us really want a second child, and we really want to have one with each other, even if we don't end up staying together. We don't hate each other, and we're exploring the idea of cohabiting and co-parenting even if we don't stay married. Is this a terrible
1: idea? It's a tricky idea, for sure. Um, I feel like, One important thing to clarify here is to separate things that you have projected onto your daughter versus what you want. Um, I think the stuff about, I think it'll be easier for her if we get divorced and there's also a baby. Um, I I don't know that you know that. Uh, You know what was true about your own childhood. Um, you don't know what your daughter's internal experience is like. I could easily see reading a letter from her in you know, 20 years that's like, as my parents were divorcing, they had a second baby, and that meant the divorce got all the attention, and then the baby, and I got none. Um, she certainly won't be able to lean on a baby. Um, so uh, I don't think that that should be a reason either for or against. Um, I think what you really need to focus on is what I want is to have a child. Um, I believe that if I get divorced, uh, it will be more difficult for me to find someone else to have a child with, and I need to deal with the consequences of that tough choice. So the options available to you would be either split with your partner, develop a shared custody agreement, and then you know either try to find someone else to have a child with or decide to have a child on your own um, that you don't share custody of with your your partner. All of those have upsides and downsides, but I think it's going to be better to weigh honestly um why you're doing it which is not out of you know pure disinterested love for your already existing daughter but it's something that you want
0: i think that's really the most important question here because this like danny said it's important to separate out the various threads in this letter, and there are many reasons why the letter writer wants to have a second child. And so, part of it is to comfort her—you know—thinks it will comfort her daughter. Part of it is the biological clock is ticking. Part of it is she seems to like the idea of having another child with this particular partner. Um, there, there are certainly many, many reasons to go forward with this plan. Um, as someone who has a six-month-old baby, and you know, in I'm aware in my own very specific, unique, personal way, the demands of having a young child and um, the difficulty of doing that even with a partner who's very attentive, it it sounds real tough to try to do that while you're also navigating the emotional complexities of a divorce, the physical, financial, you know, all, all the things that go with that. Um, and it, it does sound like if, if you've been bringing up divorce if in your relationship, that's been on the table since before your daughter was born. It's hard for me to imagine this relationship changing enough that it will be a a lifelong one or go the distance to um, provide kind of a stable environment for your daughter at home. And I think something to consider, too, is that um, the child that you would have, the second child, would be kind of born under circumstances that could be really tough for a kid. And so, like Danny said um both the child who you have now not necessarily being helped by at the addition of a sibling um and the sibling's you know story of being born being one in which um it was kind of a like last gasp of a of a marriage um that seemed to be in a really difficult place i know you're not saying kind of stay together for the kids but that seems like a a tricky idea at the very very best
1: yeah so i don't want to say yes, this sounds great. Do it. You're going to be amazing. Co-parents divorcing will be the thing that will make you go from being like a tricky husband and wife combo to really great, evolved, super happy, cohabiting co-parents. I also don't want to say absolutely don't do it. Um, I just think it's going to be really helpful to you to take your time and think through what are the worst case scenarios in each scenario and to accept that there's just going to be loss and sadness no matter what you do. Um, I I don't think there's going to be a version where you get everything that you want. And so it's going to be really important to think through, like, what if you decide to have a baby, then you separate, then you surprise yourself by um, not taking as long as you thought Mm -hmm. you were going to need and meeting somebody else, Um, meeting somebody else that you also want to co-parent with, meeting somebody else who also wants a child. I'm not saying that you should assume that will happen, but ask, like, what if that does? What would I do then? Um, how would it feel about the choice that I had made um, if something unexpected came after it? Um, and so to that end, I think seeing a uh, couples counselor is going to be super important, not with yeah. the goal of staying together as a married couple, um, but of figuring out how can you be the best parents to the daughter you already have? Mm-hmm. Um, is the way that you are married and treating one another right now, is it affecting her? Is it damaging to her? Are there ways that you could... Um, work on the ways that you communicate, again, whether or not you stay married, um, that are just going to help set a good foundation. And maybe after you've done that for like a period of time where it doesn't feel like I'm on the verge of just like running off Mm -hmm. and calling it a day, um, like get get to a point where you feel like, ah, I know what this kind, supportive co-parenting relationship is going to look like before you make a decision about whether or not to introduce another child to the mix.
0: I think that's really helpful. And I think this is one of those scenarios in which really thinking through several different paths ahead of you will benefit you and your family in the long run. So to see a counselor and to start to ask, what would it look like if we decided to live together under the same roof, but no longer be married to one another? What would it look like if we moved into different places and decided to co-parent? Think through those scenarios together and possibly decide on one of those with your husband think about what is the one that is most appealing to you and then once you've been living that for a little while to think about is what we want to have a kind of arrangement where we try for another child and then introduce that child into this ongoing arrangement that we have but for you to be committed right now you know what are the things you can control you can control the way that you interact with him that you interact with your daughter And the environment that you provide for your daughter seems like, you know, a really important thing to be thinking about. And so Mm -hmm. to work on that and give yourself a little bit of time to really get to a place where you feel less tenuous about exactly what the future is going to look like and more concrete about your day-to-day ability to just care for your daughter, that seems like a win for everybody.
1: Yeah. I also just want to point out. I, I do feel a little old fashioned for saying this, um, especially though, I think because I, I will often advocate even for people with children um, to leave their marriage, usually because mm-hmm. it just sounds like there are no other good options and yeah. this is untenable. Um I also want to acknowledge, like, divorce is really hard, especially for kids. Yep. Um. And you know, if if there's a chance for a marriage to be repaired, um, or or for a connection to be rebuilt, I think that's a really good thing. And so you say, you know, if we're going to get divorced, which isn't a foregone conclusion by any means, um. Spend some time with that rather than kind of jumping ahead to maybe we'll just be great co-parents. Let's have another baby. Call it a day. Let that kind of eat up the last embers of love that we have for one another and then be like friendly co-workers. Um, if it's not a foregone conclusion that you two need to get divorced and it's only kind of a cycle of every six months um, and you're kind of admitting some difficult, painful, but maybe necessary truths to one another, it, Part of what you may be able to do in that couple's counselor uh, in those sessions is to say, I would like to find a way to have a good marriage. Maybe not the greatest marriage of all time, Mm -hmm. um, but I would like to maybe find a way to, if there is a way to be married to one another and to be loving and kind and respectful of one another and to appreciate one another and to communicate well, I'd like to find it. And if there's not, if this is just absolutely done, then once, once we've kind of figured that out for sure, then I want to figure out how to divorce well. But, you know, if there's a chance that you can make this work, um, spend some time in couples counseling together, putting some of the energy that you are kind of right now putting towards the fantasy of co-parenting and splitting up. Um, invest that in the therapy together first.
0: I think that's a really wonderful thing to say. And I think um, if there's the possibility that you know, divorce is not at this point a foregone conclusion. And it seems to me that you feel a little conflicted about that. Earlier in the letter, you say uh, something about you feel like you're not quite throwing in the towel yet, but you feel like you're just about to. Um, Maybe you can also see a counselor on your own Mm -hmm. and think through kind of what that might look like for you. And then if you do and feel like you are able to stick in the marriage or ask the question, what would it look like if we both decided to stay here? Could you give yourself six months to do that Yeah. Um, so that you're not kind of kicking the can down the road forever and ever, but that you're sent, you're giving yourself some parameters in which to cultivate
1: the kind of marriage that you want to have, if that is still a possibility? Yeah. And you say, you know, you're not quick to recover from breakups, and you think you'll definitely be menopausal before you're ready to date again, and you're only in your late 30s now. Mm-hmm. Again, obviously... Menopausal can mean a lot of different things, depending yeah. on like the individual, but like part of what I think you're saying there is is if this relationship ends, it'll be really hard for yeah. me to get over that mm-hmm. and that says to me that there's still some real love here um, and because you don't kind of go into detail about why you guys think about splitting up every every six months or so, I just wonder like maybe that's not as maybe that's something that can be fixed. Maybe that's something that can be addressed so. I think there's a good reason here to at least try that first. Yeah. If that's not possible, if you can't get anywhere, um, you know, weigh the pros and cons, think really seriously, take responsibility for what you want and don't mm-hmm. try to put that on other people. Um, acknowledge that any choice you make is going to have upsides and downsides. Um, bear in mind that you are allowed to do that if you want. If you two decide our marriage is over but we're really good co-parents, this is probably the only way we'll get to have another child. We want to do that. We're relatively clear-eyed about the potential upsides and downsides. That is a choice you can absolutely make. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think it's worth investigating your other options first. Yeah, agree. And good luck.
0: It's hard. It is. It Mm -hmm. sounds like you're in a tough spot. Give yourself some grace.
1: Yeah. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America N.A. Member FDSE. Laura, would you uh, read our next letter? Oh, thanks. Please enjoy. I wow. picked this one so specially for you. <laughs> you are the best... The best. You made me say that you were the best of the children, so. I
0: know, but that's indisputably true. All right, here we go. Buckle in. The subject of this letter is, my father posts his erotic artwork on the same social media account as his family photos. Dear Prudence, my father is a gay fine artist whose erotic artwork has only gotten more sexual as he has aged. His artwork is not exclusively sexual, but he is finding increased financial success for his erotic depictions. Although sometimes I get a bit embarrassed by some of the images he creates, I'm supportive of his talents, and I follow his work online. Recently, some photos he took and posted bothered me because they showed a leather-clad model in his home. It may be uncomfortable. My father often posts family photos as well as his artwork on his social media. I'm starting to wonder if mixing photos of grandchildren and photos of racy art on the same profile is appropriate, and I need an outsider's perspective because my family and I are already used to this as normal. Overall... The family photos my father posts are received with appropriate reactions from his friends and fans. His sexy artwork tends to receive sexy comments. Recently, an issue I've had is people have stolen my dad's personal photos that sometimes feature my children to create fraudulent accounts. It really has nothing to do with his art. Also, once or twice, my father has hashtag photos of me or my sister's husband as hashtag gay art, which seems misleading, although it may have been inadvertent as he uses that hashtag so often. What is appropriate when posting family images alongside erotica on the same social media account? That question seems so wrong, but I'm asking it. If I need to draw the line, what exactly should be my criteria?
1: I mean, this definitely feels like a question that was designed to elicit life is a rich tapestry. Yeah, you've got to say it, TM. Life is a rich, rich tapestry. Um, everyone's different. For me, the amount of family photos that I would want um, somebody posting alongside of their erotica, however lovely, would be none. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's necessarily a universal rule. Yeah, um, but I do think that um, since this is something that has resulted in people stealing photos uh, to create fraudulent accounts that have included your children, you really have a stake to say, Dad, I, I would like you to have a separate account for your work.
0: Yeah. To me, in this letter, two there there are two kinds of. Um things that maybe need to happen, one of which is it sounds like maybe your dad needs like a social media lesson or someone to kind of walk him through like because it seems like you think there are things he may be doing inadvertently. Now, Mm -hmm. if he's not, that's a different story. But if he is hashtagging these pictures of, you know, your sister's husband and your husband inadvertently with gay art. Um, then you may just want to sort of sit him down and walk through, hey, Dad, when you use, you know, Instagram or whatever photo service you're using, um, this is how a hashtag works. And this is when it's appropriate to use that. This is when it's not. Like if, right. if he needs that kind of just 101 level tutoring, um, think about maybe someone that you can hire to do that for him. Who is or not related do to him. you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the other piece here is the question, well, one of several other pieces is the question of, People um, taking pictures and creating accounts with, I think, your children's photographs. So this, to me, is a thing that I feel particularly strongly about is photo-based apps where pictures of children are posted. Profiles should be kept very private. Yeah. Um, That's, again, my opinion. Your mileage may vary, et cetera. But is it possible for your dad to have like a person if he really likes having pictures of you and your family could he have a personal stream and account on instagram or wherever where he posts pictures of you guys and it's locked and it's private so you know who's seeing it and if someone was stealing those photos ostensibly you'd be able to you know figure out who and then he could have a separate account for his artwork that seems like it might be
1: a good idea here and i think especially because there are like kids who are minors and can't have the kind of same like, oh, it's fine to use my picture or, oh, I'm actually not comfortable with it that an adult has. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good rule, regardless of the kind of art your dad does. Yeah. Um, so I, like, I think in general, uh, as a lot of us are sort of like our kids are coming of age in an era where you can put a lot of photos online, mm-hmm. um, and that didn't happen when we were growing up, there needs to be some kind of different rules of engagement. Like, I'm not saying everyone needs to go back to just having like physical family albums that they like mail off to relatives, but I do think it's really easy to think, oh, this is fine. My kid doesn't object, but like, yeah, your kid is six. Your kid thinks everything you do is pretty cool. right? Um, and a part of your job as a parent is to, like, be protective of their image. Yeah. And if, you know, your dad's kind of laissez-faire mixture of his work and photos of the grandkids means that their pictures are getting stolen and used to create fraudulent accounts, mm-hmm. that means he should change what he's doing.
0: Yeah. And I think that it's—you sound like you are quite supportive of your dad's endeavors. I mean, I would not follow my father's social media account if he were posting erotic
1: art, probably. Yeah. And I but, think that bit about— when it got to a picture of a leather-clad model in his home, made you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It's okay, yeah. to be non-specifically supportive of your dad's That's erotic art.
0: Exactly what I was going to say. So feel free to give yourself the gift of not following or asking him to send you occasional things. If you really feel like, yeah, I, I don't mind seeing this. I kind of like it sometimes. Like, or if you if he does some unrelated art, like check that out but if it would feel better to you to just not follow that um yeah absolutely click unfollow real fast yeah it is super okay it
1: is so okay i am not entirely up to date on my dad's erotic art yeah um and so i think for you to either mute or unfollow and have you know just a quick check in with him that's just like dad i love your work overall i'm so thrilled I just realized, like, it was getting a little uh, personal for me in a way that, you know, as your kid, uh, I, yeah. I'm just happy for you, but I'm going to be happy for you from a distance.
0: Yes, that's well said.
1: Super appropriate. If your dad is like, I I can't understand why you don't want to see footage of sexy models in my house. Yeah. You know, that's a conversation for uh, why we have certain boundaries with family members that we don't have with other people. Yeah, exactly. and
0: And it's. Valid and important and, you know, you're very within um, like normal uh, acceptable behavior to do so. The other thing I would say is these accounts where they have uh, stolen personal photos to create fraudulent accounts, you know, definitely go ahead and report those. I don't know if that will do anything dramatic, but... Um, Don't forget to do that because you don't want pictures of your family and kids kind of floating
1: around. Yeah. And like your dad sounds great. I hope he continues to make the kind of art that he loves and that he gets all the money in the world. Um, But you're not being a jerk or like doing anything wrong by saying, like, you know, I need to set a limit in terms of how much I follow you just as your kid. Mm -hmm. And then also to say, we need as a family to reestablish rules about how we post pictures of the kids online. Yeah. That's totally totally important i think actually to to be a little militant about
0: it is it's a very good thing to set up some pretty strict boundaries around i think one of the things that we've come up with is um my parents don't use social media much my dad did one time post a video of the baby to his twitter and before he did he texted me the video he was going to use and asked is it okay if i post this here's the caption Mm -hmm. and i said absolutely you go ahead but and, and then the link didn't work because he couldn't figure out Twitter. That does
1: not surprise me at all. It's
0: dad. Yeah. But um, I do think that, you know, for you to say like you get to decide um, what what will go on the Internet now on behalf of your children and they will get to decide for themselves later. But to be as protective as you think is wise is um, only a good thing. And so let yourself kind of be assertive and um
1: In charge of those decisions. Yeah. Because, you know, again, your your kids do not have the kind of understanding of their own online persona that they will as adults. Right. You can always err on the side of later as adults putting more pictures of yourself up. You can't undo stuff that your parents did when you were six and seven and eight. So I think in general, it's good to err on the side of caution.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And particularly to consider it is like pictures of kids or family next to pictures of erotica. That doesn't mean that That's a bad thing inherently, but it might be a better feeling to say, hey, dad, if you really want to do these pictures and if you as his kid are okay with it, asking him to do kind of a private, you
1: know, locked down feed. That's super, super reasonable. Yeah. I mean, you know, much in the same way that I think it's fine to have like um, different taps in a soda maker so that you get Coke in one and Diet Coke in the other. It's great to say we're going to have separate accounts for erotica and separate accounts for pictures of the grandkids. Yeah.
0: Which one? a value judgment. Which one's Diet Coke? We're not going to
1: tell you. Exactly. But if somebody wants Diet Coke and they don't want Coke, it's great that they can hit the Diet Coke button and get the Diet Coke. That is erotica. (laughs) I love you.
0: I love myself.
1: Uh, All right. Uh, This next letter is... uh, It's my turn, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I quit being a vegetarian six months ago and I haven't told my husband yet. Ah. Exclamation point. Dear Prudence, my husband and I have been together for 15 years now. Early in our relationship... We both decided to become vegetarians. And in a way, making that decision together brought us closer together. We identified strongly as vegetarians ever since. About six months ago, this change, I finally succumbed to an overpowering craving for a hamburger. And it was probably the most delicious thing I'd had in my life. I knew it would be good, but what surprised me was that I also suddenly had so much more energy, felt so much better, and even started to look healthier as I reincorporated meat back into my diet. So after 10-ish years, I'm eating meat again, if infrequently. I still haven't told my husband, and the lengths I go to hide my new diet has gotten a little out of control. I hide tins of sardines in the linen closet, keep frozen fillets in the freezer disguised as bags of broccoli, and have taken to preparing my meals when he's out at work or off with friends. There are a few times I've been caught, but I've waved it away as a treat for the dog, or the smell of steak being from a non-existent barbecue outside. I feel bad for not having told him yet. In fact, I've told about everyone but him. I've almost told him about a dozen times now, but every time I'm finally ready to come clean, he'll say something like, I don't think I could ever date someone who ate meat, or being a vegetarian is a really important part of our marriage. He really hates meat eating and is sentimental about the fact that it's something that we share. I hate I also hate deceiving him and my friends keep on telling me that I need to tell him. How do I finally break it to him? Uh, one thing that might help is your husband definitely knows.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say I feel like he 100% knows. He a million percent he knows. He definitely knows. He's not just casually dropping lines like, "Oh, I feel like I can never date someone who's a vegetarian, who's not a vegetarian. You've been married for years." Yeah.
1: He knows. He definitely knows the times that he's caught you He did not really buy the line about, I think there's a barbecue somewhere outside.
0: (laughs) Or this is a treat for the dog. Because I would imagine that, you know, a meat flavored dog treat smells different from like the garlic chicken you just had cooking. Yeah, my
1: guess is you would have just bought dog treats. Yeah. Um, Like your husband knows these are ridiculous lies that a seven-year-old would see through. And your husband is smarter than a seven-year-old.
0: And I think you probably feel a little embarrassed and ashamed and like you need to justify it. The whole bit about, you know, looking better and feeling better and all those things. Right. It's not
1: my choice. I don't really want to. Right. I just have to because now all of a sudden I have the power of a hamburger I'm I'm energetic.
0: Yeah. yeah. And it's great. Listen, if you decide that you want to eat meat again, please eat meat again and enjoy it. But I...
1: talk about it. Yeah. And be willing to you know, have a tough conversation. And
0: one of the things that I think is really important in and hard in marriage in general is that you are going to disappoint the other person. And I think right now you are afraid of disappointing your husband. And so you are lying to him um, in the interest of not disappointing him. And he already knows. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like you will have some hard things to work through because this has been a part of the glue that is, you know, uh, kept you in a in a marriage for all these years and you're going to have to try to figure out what it looks like to be in a marriage where one of you is a vegetarian and it's very important to him and one of you is not.
1: Yeah. And so I think like two things are going to be really important here. One of them is to certainly apologize for, Mm -hmm. you know, telling him goofy lies. Um, But don't feel like you need to apologize like you have transgressed from some good thing that you used to both do and now you are the bad spouse who needs to be punished um, or has to make it up to him. You know, it, it, just as I think it's important to take responsibility for, you did this because you wanted to, and you're making choices about your diet that feel right to you. Um, I also don't think you need to say, like, oh, I'm I'm so awful. I can't believe no. I let you down like this. I, I need to apologize not only for eating meat, but also for hiding it from you mm-hmm. and to just, like, really let him dictate the terms of who has the moral high ground here. Like I I think that's going to be really important for you.
0: Yeah, I agree completely, and I think that, you know, it sounds like the the way that you think of yourself in this particular scenario, um, you might spend, you know, just spend an hour kind of um, imagining how you're thinking about yourself right now because you just use words in this letter like I succumbed, Um, I I was, I suddenly had so much more energy. These kinds of like. uh, Things being acted upon you instead of you choosing to act. So maybe something you could do is just, like, reframe this story in your mind a little bit and give yourself more agency. Just say, "I all of a sudden, after years of living this one way, I decided to do something different, and it's actually been great, and I'm happy about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can cause some difficulty. And to say to your husband... In a humble way, I'm sorry that I kept this from you.
1: I should not have done that. I'm sorry that I lied to you. But not in the sense but of, like, I owe you no. knowledge of everything I eat. Just in the sense of this was obvious and it was distressing and confusing to you. Well,
0: like, yeah. And, like, like we had we – had, if you both commit to being vegetarians early in your marriage, at yeah. some point you choose not to be, that's great. You probably should tell the person that of you course. made
1: that decision I, yeah. with. I guess I just mostly want to acknowledge, on the one hand – it's totally relevant to the kind of marriage that you two have, mm. and you do want to apologize for not talking about it with him. Yeah, but I also don't want you to feel like you owe him right. constant updates on your diet. I also believe that even if you're married, even if you both share certain values about meat eating, yeah, um, it is also not a like fair failing. To suddenly have, like, eaten a sardine. Like, you don't no, owe him that.
0: No, no, no. And aside from, you know, to, to think through, yeah, to kind of offer up a, a bit of an explanation, but to not feel like you need to justify this or feel like you're coming from a place where you feel frantic and, like, you need to list 10 reasons why you chose this decision so that he will accept it, which it sounds a little bit like you're feeling that um, at, the, at the moment. And to, to simply kind of not over-explain um but to to share what you decided to do and why and let that speak for itself
1: yeah yeah and so i think to you know you, you know you need to tell him i think you, you know he's going to find out uh, like more he's already yeah. knows but yeah. like all your friends know you're keeping me in the house like at some point it's going to become so obvious that he will bring it up with you and i think that would probably feel worse in some ways so i think to say I, you know, I want to talk honestly about something. I think we've been dancing around for a little while, mm-hmm. um, and to kind of walk through, you know. Here's what my thinking was when I did it. Here's what I've noticed since then. Here's what I like about it. Mm-hmm. Um, here's ways in which, I, you know, I want to apologize for the way that I hid it from you. Here's also been what I've been afraid of, which yeah. is that you won't love me, yeah. uh, that you'll leave me, that you'll consider, you know, not eating meat more important than our marriage. Yes. Um, and I can't control for all of those things. And I know you might see them differently, but that's why I've been afraid. And I really love you. Yeah. Um, and so I've been afraid to talk about it with you.
0: I think that's a really good thing to identify. I mean, I think in so many cases, identifying your un- Underlying fear is like one of the most important things you can do. Um, I know for me, as someone who's dealt with anxiety my whole life, I find that immensely helpful to just name my fear. And that may be, you know, I recognize some of that fear in this letter that I have felt before, not in this situation and others, but to just say to him, you know, it's kind of goofy. It was not, I'm not proud that I lied about it. I don't want to do that. I did that because I felt afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, and to just kind of be, if, if you feel like you can trust being honest with him about that. I think that would be important. And this could be the pathway to some really good conversations where the two of you talk through, um, you know, how do you eat meat ethically if that's what you choose to do? It could be, you know, going somewhere valuable together. Yeah. And
1: again, you you two may disagree on that. You know, he may come down like pretty strictly on one side. And at that point, the conversation may be more about, okay, how do we like live in such a way yeah. that i don't um you know intrude upon you and you don't keep tabs on me um but i think there are ways to peacefully coexist here and i mm-hmm. hope that you too can find it um if for no other reason than like you know he hiding knows. sardines in the like linen
0: closet is just that's not
1: that's not good for eating. you go to yeah. pull
0: out clean sheets and the tin of sardines falls down yeah
1: yeah and there's there's only so many fictional barbecues you can
0: um, i mean maybe not maybe maybe they live in texas
1: or maybe they live in Northern California where everything has been smelling like a campfire for the last week and a half.
0: That's also true.
1: All right. This last letter is all you.
0: All right. The subject is addiction fatigued. Dear Prudence, I've been best friends with Paulina since we were 12. We are almost 30. Beginning with the first rehab program at 13, Paulina has been to several others over the years. She has struggled to maintain her sobriety on her own, including AA meetings, and has relapsed countless times. I have tried my best to be there for her, but every relapse and the lies that accompany them have made me more resentful. She was completely out of it at my wedding a few months ago, and don't think she remembers much of it. I grew up as an only child of a single alcoholic mother and had similar trust issues with her, which led to a more distanced but amicable relationship. Prudy, I am just tired of it and feel awful for that. Paulina feels ashamed of herself after every relapse and apologizes profusely, but I'm running out of things to say to try and help. I don't think she has any confidence left in herself to get sober for good, and I secretly find myself losing hope, too. Any tips on how I can best continue to support her? I tried Alan on as a teenager but was the only attendee under 60 and felt even more isolated. I've been to therapists over the years but have not found it to be super helpful.
1: Man, this is big. Yeah. Um, I I, I do want to suggest... um, trying Al-Anon again, especially now that you are not a teenager, yeah. you may find that it is not only people over 60 um, and and that you may be slightly closer in, if not age, at least life experience as a bunch of other adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that that's going to be the like magic solution for you, but it may prove helpful. If not, you might also consider um, Adult Children of Alcoholics, mm-hmm. which is another organization um, that Literally, it's just for people who are the children of alcoholics um, and can often be really, really helpful. Um, So, uh, you know, I would I would just want to put in a plug for, again, seeking out other people who have had similar experiences.
0: Yeah. And I think um, that towards the end of your letter, you kind of were were quick to either dismiss or sort of think that therapy and AAA or Al-Anon would not be particularly helpful. And that may be the case, but it may be that you actually do find some value in either or both of those places. So um, it's, I think, certainly worth going back to two or three Al-Anon meetings. Mm -hmm. Try out different places, different locations, different groups, because they'll have different demographics. Um, Your experience probably won't be the same as it was when you were a teenager. If it's not helpful, you don't need to continue to go. But to give it kind of a college try. And then if you can afford therapy um, or get a recommendation, it it may be, again,
1: worth one or two visits to someone who can help you think this through. Right. And, uh, you know, if you can't afford therapy. The thing with ACA and Al-Anon is it is people who have been through this exact situation. Mm. It has been with other people who are saying, I'm not only at the end of my rope, I've been at the end of my rope for 18 years. Yes, I don't know how to keep doing this. I don't know how to not do it.
0: No, and particularly uh, to then have the additional layer of the relationship with your mother, which congratulations on getting to a place that's amicable with her, that is admirable and must have taken hard work. And then also probably Um, recalls some of that difficulty as you navigate your relationship with your best friend. So you've got the relationship with your friend itself and then also
1: calling back to how hard it has been with your mom at different times. Mm -hmm. And I also just want to say, implicit to me in this letter is the question of, like, can I support her without being on the front lines of Mm -hmm. this particular alcoholic disaster? Yeah. And the answer there is yes. Absolutely. Uh, You are not... um, It is not unloving. Um, It is not a sign that you no longer believe she has the ability to get sober um, or get help um, if you don't, like, show up every time she calls. Um, Or if you say, I love you and I hope that you will give me a call, you know, when you are working on getting sober. But in the meantime, if you're drinking, I can't be around you. Mm -hmm. That's not um, cruel. That's not consigning her to despair. That's not abandoning her despite your years of connection. Um, Taking a little distance is okay.
0: And it might be, in fact, the kind of only one of the only moves you have left at this point, because it seems to me that for 18 years, you have been so close with her. You have walked with her through different rehab programs, through relapses, um, and that one thing that you may need to do at this point or may find yourself asking for permission to do is putting a lot of distance in between you and your friend and to to acknowledge that yes absolutely that would be you know an okay thing for you to do and to acknowledge that sounds really tough mm-hmm. and um i'm sorry that you're having to go through that and i think again that's why something like Al-Anon could be really helpful because it's better to go through this with people than alone mm-hmm. um but to feel like you are someone who's been trying to help and prop up your friend while she has been experiencing addiction and relapse, that's exhausting. And then not only to have done that in recent years, but for the last 18 years, that's just so hard and that's not um, – it's not sustainable.
1: Right. And and so I think the idea of um, like how could I still be there for her if I weren't like right, right on hand for all of all the this – you know, think to yourself, if Paulina never got sober, mm-hmm. if this were the story of her life for the rest of her life, what would be an ideal relationship? What could you be there for? Yeah. Maybe that is a monthly phone call. Um, Maybe that is every once in a while getting together for a brief lunch yeah. or something early in the day, depending mm-hmm. on how early she starts drinking. Um, And then, you know going home yeah um, does that would it mean like whenever she has an emergency reminding yourself this is not my emergency um, she has gotten through many of these before um, I cannot stop her from getting into more emergencies by bailing her out right now yeah. um, I'm gonna let her know I love her and that I I will talk to her at another time mm-hmm. like think think through that like if she never gets better um, if she never stops what would you be able to handle with her?
0: I think that's a really good practical question to ask. And I think to know and remind yourself that you are able to love your friend without trying to solve her problems is really important because when we love people, we want them to do well and we want to be able to help them all the time. And particularly when someone is in their addiction, it's not always possible. In fact, probably more often than not, it isn't possible for you to be the one who is going to get them through their emergencies, their, um, their difficulties. And to try something new, I think to give yourself permission to try something new right now uh, would be really important.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, I would be tired, too, of 18 years of trying to help somebody get sober. I don't think you should feel awful about that. That doesn't mean you think that she's a waste of a person. Um, That doesn't mean you think that she could never get help. It simply means that there's lots of different kinds of help out there. Mm -hmm. Um, And you are not a professional and you cannot do it for her. So it doesn't mean you're saying you're never going to get sober or you're not a worthwhile person underneath this addiction Mm -mm. um, or or anything along those lines. It just means that you need to build a life for yourself where your own well-being is not dependent on Paulina sobriety.
0: I think that's really well said. And I think the other thing I want to say is, and I feel like I've said this about a few people, but it's true. Like, I think you're a really caring and loving friend. And so... I remember one time learning about something called solution-based therapy, where you go in and identify all the good things about what you're doing. You're already in therapy. You're talking about your problems. You're doing things that are hard for you. So for you to recognize, because it does sound like you're just weary and have also been there for her on the front lines of her emergencies, um, and you might think of yourself as a worse friend for not being there. So if that's part of what you're fighting against, to counter that with you know, you have a lot of love for her and love for your best friend isn't the same thing as solving all
1: of her problems for or even with her. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be the way forward. Um, and, and I wish you all the best. And even if it just means like taking fewer of those panicked calls um, yeah. and trying to figure out how do I do that without feeling like a monster, that's going to be that's going to feel Really good, yeah. And you've been able to do that with your mom, and I can't imagine how difficult that was. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you can do it with your mom, I think you'll you'll be able to find a way to do it with Paulina, even though it might be hard in different ways. Mm-hmm. Well, Laura, I don't know that I would agree that you are the best of the Orberry children, <gasps> but you were very at least top three i mean yeah you're absolutely top three yay yeah absolutely top three and you're certainly better than johnny who's never even come on the show yeah
0: johnny yeah i mean he's great i love him he's coming over tonight oh is he yeah he's gonna see the baby oh tell him i say hi okay i will
1: thanks for listening to dear prudence our producer is phil circus our theme music was composed by robin hilton production assistance by Taylor Simmons. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dear to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds or a minute tops. Thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.